For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17, and then we're going to move into chapter 2, verse 5. You know, the chapter divisions in the Bible are synthetic. So chapter 2 actually contains the same train of thought that Paul talks about in the first chapter. Now, this whole teaching, I think, can be described as the collision between God's wisdom and human wisdom, that God operates in such a way to confound human wisdom, because otherwise it would lead to us boasting. It would cause our pride to swell up within us. And so he uses the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as a way to throw down the pretensions of human beings. Now, you know, today the cross is sort of lost on us. You know, you see people walking around with necklaces that have a cross at the end of it. Or you see buildings as you're driving down the street with crosses hanging on them. And, you know, when you think about the cross, it has sort of been sanitized of its horror and shame. In the first and second century, if somebody saw an image, a symbol of the cross, it would bring to mind these ghastly pictures where they saw criminals, blood streaked corpses dying on these Roman highways. And that's exactly what God points to as really the symbol of our salvation. And so the cross really polarizes us. And Paul points out in three different ways that, first of all, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Secondly, that uh, he points out the converse of the cross. And finally, the proclamation of the cross as we look through our passage. So let's begin with the first one, which is the foolishness of the cross, starting in verse 17. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So I think it's important for us maybe to stop right here and discuss what he means by human wisdom. Because I think that to the average reader, somebody who's not familiar with the Bible, maybe, that they might be asking, what's wrong with human wisdom? And I think it's important for us to define wisdom because wisdom isn't the same as ignorance. When we talk about somebody who is ignorant, that means that they don't possess information or knowledge, either because they don't have education or maybe somebody didn't tell them about something. And so really it's a misfortune, not a, not a problem that they have. Whereas when we talk about wisdom, we're talking about knowledge applied. And so when we talk about wisdom, we're talking about somebody taking information, knowledge that they have and applying it either to make good decisions, they use it to exercise good judgment. Um, and really, you know, when we talk about wisdom, there's a moral dimension to it. So... That's really one of the differences we see between wisdom and knowledge. That when we talk about wisdom, there's a moral dimension, but also it also, it also exemplifies our values as well. That we may use our knowledge 
to uh, take from people. For example, you think about someone who possesses uh, a lot of knowledge about the stock market. They may use that to steal money from people through a Ponzi scheme, right? Or maybe somebody who is incredibly driven, charismatic, and intelligent. They may use all of those qualities in order to amass lots of money and live a, a comfortable life while ignoring the needs of the poor. And so we see that wisdom contains our value system. And so um, human wisdom really opposes God's wisdom. Uh, when we think about human wisdom, really it entails human speculation and achievement. We're going to see in the case of the Corinthians that human wisdom uh, really delights in learning about new ideas or creating worldviews and trying to fit God within it. Or in the case of the Corinthians, they were enamored with people of high social standing, people who were wealthy and felt like they were the elite. Also, human wisdom denies or reimagines the God of the Bible. There is a desire in human wisdom to try to domesticate God to use the things that we're good at, the gifts that we possess, our intelligence, as a way to try to qualify ourselves to enter God's presence. And yet God says, uh, that's really the opposite of the kind of wisdom I offer. And finally, we see that human wisdom uh, is profoundly self-centered. You know, when you think about God's wisdom, it centers around him, the creator of the universe. And yet human beings insist that we are the fulcrum in which the universe uh, exists on. That we see ourselves at the center of the universe. On the other hand, he talks about preaching the gospel, which later in verse 21, he points out, is the wisdom of God. He says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So the wisdom of God, uh, if you want to distill it to one thing, represents the cross of Christ. In the cross of Christ, God was able to demonstrate not only his justice, but also his mercy at the very same time. And so it epitomizes God's wisdom. We see that God's wisdom focuses on Christ crucified. We're going to see that theme throughout this passage. Also, it humbles human pride and exalts God's mercy. God uses the cross, the shame of the cross, to throw down human pridefulness and to elevate God's mercy and his kindness. Verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Um, so really, Paul is saying that the entire human race is divided along two lines. That there are those who are perishing and those who are saved. You know, various cultures use different ways to try to categorize their people. 
You know, in the ancient world, 50% of Rome was dominated by slaves. And so you had Roman citizens, and then you had the slave population. Or the Greeks often categorized people along the lines of whether they were cult people were culturally Greek, able to speak Greek, and those who weren't. Those who weren't, they would call barbarians. And so it was another way of trying to divide people. And so we see this really, not in the ancient world, but really throughout history where people try to categorize one another, to try to divide one another. And yet Paul says, really, the only thing that matters, the only division that really matters is that there are those who are perishing and those who are being saved by, by the cross. You know, 50 billion years from now, it's not going to matter whether or not you were a Jew or, a, bar, or a, a Greek or a barbarian, whether you were a slave person or free, black or white. What's going to matter is whether you are in a right relationship with God or whether you perished apart from God. And so uh, God uh, really looks at things in different terms. You know, we like to create these synthetic divisions. And God sees things from a bigger picture. And really along this axis, you know, God says that, you know, according to where you stand, you're going to view the cross different ways. You know, to those who are perishing, those who are rejecting the message of Christ, the cross is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, they view that as the power of God. That the message of Christ, though foolishness to the rest of the world, actually has the transforming power of God contained within it. He goes on to say in verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. He's actually quoting an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 29, verse 13. And Paul says this idea that God would actually throw down the pretensions of humans, that's not like a new idea that I'm introducing. Look all the way back to the Old Testament and you'll see that God planned really all along to frustrate the intelligence of the intelligent and to throw down the wisdom of the wise. That he was trying to find a way that humans would never be able to devise in order to save us. And he did that because he wants us to come to him humbly. You know, God's intention is really tied up with the concept of sin. When he devised this plan to save us through the cross, he knew that human sinfulness revolts against this idea of the cross because it entails humility. You know, when you think about human sinfulness, there's the aspect or the dimension of human sinfulness where you commit moral wrongdoing. There's that part. But sin also includes a principled defiance of God, where we actively resist him. You know, prior to the fall of mankind, when, when a human being would wake up, they would be in a right relationship with God. They would see him at the center of the universe. And as a result, they wouldn't 
they would treat God and other human beings uh, in a right manner. But now that we have decided to throw off God's authority in our lives, we wake up and we start off our day with a profound sense of self-centeredness. We view the world from the standpoint of how things relate to us, how I feel about things, how these things are going to affect my life. You know, something as simple as like looking through old pictures with you and your friends, where, does your, where are your eyes naturally drawn to? First thing you want to look at is yourself, right? Whether or not you have a goofy look on your face. You know... We are oriented that way because of our wrongdoing. And so God devised a plan that would cut against the grain of our self-centeredness. He devised a way that would throw down this desire to put ourself at the center. He says, he, he uh, continues here with three stinging rhetorical questions. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? You know, the wise man in the ancient world, these were probably the Stoics or maybe the Epicureans or maybe the Sophists who would travel from place to place, uh, spreading new ideas and new philosophies that were sort of floating around. And Paul it points out, he says, which one of these wise people ever reason their way to the cross. You know, in our day, this would probably be like the great minds, you know, who travel around the world speaking and lecturing, sharing the newest ideas. And Paul would say to these people, which one of these great minds have ever thought their way to the cross? You know, you think about maybe... Uh, this could represent the scientist who's sort of the self-styled philosopher. You know, they take their narrow experience and expertise and try to extrapolate this entire worldview. And Paul says, which one of these people, these scientists, have ever reasoned their way to God? In fact, whenever these scientists or these experts reason from their own uh, study and their own expertise... They usually lead themselves away from God and others. He says, where is the scholar? Um, the scholar probably uh, represented the scribe. The word is sometimes translated uh, secretary or clerk. But these were probably, uh, this was probably a reference to individuals who were experts in Old Testament law. So these people would study the law and they would figure out very specific ways to apply the Old Testament law to your life. And so in our modern day, this would be something like the theologian, you know, the, the New Testament scholar. And Paul would say, you know, which one of the, the theologians, apart from the revelation of God, have ever reasoned their way to the cross? Then he says, the philosopher of this age, you know, these were people who um, were the disputers or the de debaters. These people would travel and uh, they would showcase through their eloquent, eloquence and their, their rhetoric, 
uh, all of these different new ideas. And they would often try to persuade people to think clearly about the issues of their day. And, you know, Paul says, which one of these philosophers have ever arrived at the cross or imagined the cross? In our day, you know, you think about socialism, for example, as a worldview. You know, socialism has much concern for the poor and disadvantage. But has socialism ever arrived at the cross? Or capitalism, you know, you think about capitalism and it presupposes uh, human sinfulness, which is pretty good when you're trying to come up with an economic system. But has capitalism ever driven us to the cross? Or, you know, you think about democracy. Democracy is great when you're trying to structure a society. But has democracy ever gotten us to the cross? You know, that's really Paul's point here is that human wisdom, human ideas, apart from the revelation of God, has never thought its way to the cross of Christ. Because the cross of Christ fundamentally grates against human pride. And he says, has not God uh, made foolish the wisdom of the world? The negative at the beginning of the sentence actually requires a positive response. Absolutely. Yeah. God, he's made foolish the wisdom of the world. And he says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So he says, the wisdom of God uh, and the world through its wisdom did not know God. So, you know, you have the wisdom of God and, you know, the world in its wisdom never reasoned this way to, to God's wisdom because they're diametrically opposed. And he says, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. You know, he intended to come up with a system, a way of thinking that would essentially throw down our human pride. Now, it's interesting, uh, D.A. Carson points out that part of the reason why uh, God does this is because he is trying to dismantle our desire to domesticate God. He says, a God discovered by human wisdom will both be a projection of human fallenness and a source of human pride. And this constitutes the worship of the creation, not the creator. You know, what we want to do is we want to try to uh, convince God that we're good enough because of the good things that we do. Or we want to try to make ourselves acceptable to God because maybe we have a high social standing or because we have lots of achievements in our lives. Or maybe we look at ourselves and we think we're morally better than a lot of other people. And so, therefore, God is obligated to accept us. And yet, God says that um, really there is no way that he's going to allow us to have this kind of boast if we want entrance into heaven. He says in verse 22 that the Jews demand miraculous signs. You know, recall how the multitudes demanded miraculous signs from Jesus throughout the Gospels. 
They'd always say, you know, if, if you're truly the Messiah, why don't you show yourself by performing this incredible miracle? And yet, time after time, you know, Jesus, he would perform these miracles, but he wouldn't do that when the crowds demanded it. You ever notice that? And it makes you wonder, why would Jesus, why would Jesus hold on on them? Why wouldn't he just simply do what they wanted to shut them up? And the answer is because if he conceded, then that would give control over to them. You see, that's really at the heart of our problem. Our self-centeredness demands that we put ourselves in a position of control over God. That's what human wisdom desires. Then he also says, you know, Greeks, they look for wisdom. And so, um, you know, the search for wisdom entails developing a philosophy, a way of life, or a value system into which we fit God. You know, we live in a culture today where we still have sort of a postmodern hangover. And so, people will say, you have your worldview, and that's, that's, those sets of values, those are good for you because you live in this other culture. I have, I have my own set of values because of my culture, and, you know, it just so happens that my God, the God of the Bible, neatly fits into that. And yet, God will not be categorized. He won't simply fit into a worldview that we've created. And yet, there's a desire for us to have these different worldviews and to try to make God neatly fit into them, into these categories. And yet, God says, no. My wisdom actually confounds your wisdom. And he says, we preach Christ crucified. Um, you know, this really is at the heart of the message of, of Christianity, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, and that forgiveness is freely offered through that. Now, it's kind of hard for us to, to believe that this figure 2,000 years ago who died on a cross happens to be God's solution to humanity's problems. And you can see why the Corinthian people were initially shocked when they heard Paul say this. He says it's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's actually the Greek word skandalon, where we get the word scandal from. It's a scandal. That somebody would suggest that this person dying on a wooden gibbet would be God's answer to our problem of sin. There's no way. You know, to the Jewish person, they would be looking at this through the lens of the Old Testament. For example, Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, where God says, if a man guilty of capital, a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave that body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. So they probably reason to themselves, okay, Jesus died on a tree. How, how could God allow his savior, the Messiah, to die on a tree? When the Old Testament clearly says that anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Well, it turns out Jesus became a curse for us so that we wouldn't be cursed because of our moral wrongdoing. It wasn't that Jesus himself, because of his sin, was cursed. 
He died as a substitute, as a replacement for us. Then also, he says, it's foolishness to the Gentiles. You know, again, today, we, we think of the cross, and we have this sanitized version where, you know, Jesus has this loincloth. He's got this peaceful look on his face as he's dying on the cross. But, you know, to the first century person, this would have been a complete shock and horror. In fact, um, there are extra biblical accounts where these famous uh, Roman people say that you can't even speak of the cross at dinner because it, it would just, you know, stop everybody dead in their tracks. It was so offensive. You know, I think we have to sort of kind of reimagine what this would be like, you know, putting things in our own terms. You know, imagine if somebody came up to you and um, they said, you know, hey, I want to tell you about this really important thing. And you're like, okay, well, I want to let you know about this message that ultimately will save your life. And you're like, okay, well, what is it? Um, there, the Son of God was born in Westerville, and uh, he was born from a 16-year-old high school student from Westerville South High School, a virgin. <laughs> the person continues and says, well, you know, uh, the Son of God, he never really went to college. He decided he was just going to stay in, you know, this small town. He wasn't going to move to a big city. And, um, you know, he preoccupied himself working at, you know, National Tire and Battery for most of his young life. And you're like, National Tire and Battery? You're like, oh, yeah, he could, he could rip a tire off a rim like nobody else. It was amazing. <laughs> you know, and then he started performing all these miracles. You know, I saw him walk across Mirror Lake one time. <laughs> and um, raising people from the dead. And then one day... People turned on him and killed him unrighteously, unjustly. But then he rose again from the dead. And you're like, okay. <laughs> and uh, the person's like, yeah, well, that's the message of uh, salvation right there. You'd be like, what? <laughs> that's crazy. You know, it's not illogical, but it, it uh, you know, it's hard for us to grasp why God would do something like that to save us. And yet the purpose behind God choosing something as scandalous, as preposterous as the cross is the fact that he wanted to make sure that he would choose a way of salvation that no human would ever conceive of themselves. He wanted to make certain of that. And that's the reason why God does this. We're reading verse 24 and 25. He says, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Now, he's not saying if you put together a scale that you have like, you know, the wisest human person, they're right here, and then the foolishness of God happens to be just a little bit higher than that. He's not suggesting that at all. He's simply saying humans' conception of what God has said is foolishness. And that God purposely uses the cross, which is foolishness to human beings, in order to demonstrate his wisdom. 
He says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. He's like, look at your own lives. What do you guys have to boast of? how, How can you claim to be prideful when you yourselves didn't come from these upper ranks of society? And he's pulling directly from Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24. Where Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts about this. That he understands and knows me that I am the Lord and exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. So Paul borrows these categories. And you know, when when you look back there at verse 23, he says... Let not the wise man boast. So you have the wise person. Or the strong man, which I think correlates with the influential. You know, the, the strong man was, was the ruler. And then he says, those of noble birth who were often the rich people of society. And so he says, which, you know, which one of you are like this? You know, God himself, he... He doesn't care about that at all. What he cares about is kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. And notice he says, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. He said, the majority of people among you who actually have responded to the message of Christ were people who are not from these upper ranks of society. Now, he's not saying that None of these people were of the rich or influential, but he's saying the majority were not. It's interesting, when you look at the second century anti-Christian philosopher Celsus, he says the Christians' injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near, for these abilities are thought to us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, let him come boldly. In other words, if you're an idiot, if you're uneducated, if you're ignorant, then Christianity has an open door for you. And, you know, skeptics of the Bible have attached uh, these passages to the thought that Christians in the ancient world were, were all uneducated, illiterate people. And so they succumbed to this Christian worldview. And yet, mounds of evidence suggest otherwise. You know, you look at For instance, the Apostle Paul, for him to suggest that you shouldn't use your mind or that you you shouldn't be an educated person if you want to become a Christian would essentially cancel him out, right? We know that Paul was an incredibly intelligent person, that he was uh, educated by Gamaliel, one of the greatest scholars in the ancient world. Really, you know, you look at a lot of the different people in the New Testament, Barnabas, was extremely wealthy. He had several plots of land and he sold that in order to follow Christ. And so when you look really throughout history, but also around this room, you know, you see people from all corners of the world where God has reached people, both from the upper class of society, those maybe from the more poor class of society, people from different racial backgrounds, cultural backgrounds. And so 
um, you know, really, we look at those who are followers of Christ and the majority, although they are poor, although many of them are not from the upper ranks of society, often respond to the message of Christ because they see their need in a way that those who occupy the upper echelons of society do not. But we should say, too, that, you know, it's not like poor people aren't prideful. I mean, we, we, we see that uh, people who don't have as much can be just as prideful as those who have plenty, that they carry around this sense of entitlement. And so really, the point is, God opposes the proud in all cases. Verse 27 through 29, he says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And he chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You know, one day we're gonna stand before God and um, God won't allow us to say, you know, I know that the message of Christ went out to a lot of different people, but I just happen to be smart enough to figure it out. Because if he allowed that, it would give us a legitimate boast for all of eternity. And God will not allow that. He requires humility. Verse 30 and 31, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Um, So when you look there, he says uh, that in verse 31, that is our righteousness. So he explains that the wisdom of God entails, first of all, God's righteousness that he gives to us. Now, when we think about righteousness, we're not talking about somebody who thinks they're more righteous than somebody else. This simply refers to a right standing before God. God says that we are separated, we're alienated from God because of things that we've done wrong. And through Christ, God has offered a way for us to obtain a right standing. And then secondly, he says, it is holiness. Now again, holiness is just a big church word that most of us don't understand. But holiness just means set apart. And so God has set us apart as his people. And it's not because, you know, we're smarter than everybody else. It's not because we have a lot more money than everybody else. It's not because we have more accomplishments than anybody else. It's because in his mercy and love, he has set us apart through Christ. And finally, he says, that is our redemption, that that's God's wisdom. And this word redemption is very interesting. Um, It's the word apolytrosis in Greek. And it was a technical term that was used for a ransom payment that you would give to free somebody out of indentured servitude. You know, unlike today, you don't have, they didn't have bankruptcy laws in the ancient world. So if somebody had a bad year where their, their farm was unable to produce crops or their business went belly up, often they would have to sell their wife, their children, and themselves into indentured servitude. And often they, there was no way for them to pay their way out of their situation. And so 
If they had maybe a relative or a family member, like their, their brother, who would work day and night overtime and could accumulate enough money, they could actually ransom or redeem you and your family out of, out of servitude. And so, essentially, this is what God says he has done for us, that we owe him a moral debt. We've done things wrong. And God can't just, like, turn a blind eye and say, well, you know what? Let's just, let's just call it even. It's not a big deal. Because God is just. And he can't turn a blind eye to injustice and evil in the world. So instead, what God says is that he paid the debt that we deserve to pay by dying on the cross through Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he has become our redemption. All right, let's turn to the final five verses. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come to you with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. So Paul here is moving on now to the proclamation of the gospel. And he says, I didn't come to you with eloquence or superior wisdom. He's not saying that, you know, uh, I have a really hard time speaking or um, I'm, I'm not really that educated. I just came to you even though ignorant with the message of Christ. We know from the gospel or from the book of Acts that, that Paul was an incredibly intelligent person. In fact, when you read 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, you know, Paul, he often speaks in these ways that are really hard to understand because the theological meat that he offers in his letters are just, you know, it's just, it's full. Um, Also, uh, we see in the case of the book of Acts there in in chapter 26, he's in front of Festus, the governor of uh, Palestine, And as Paul is giving this incredible speech, Festus interrupts him in the middle and he says, he says, Paul, that's enough. He says, your great learning has driven you you mad. Also, we know uh, that in Acts chapter 18, verse 4, that when he entered into Corinth, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. So it wasn't like Paul was anti-intellectual. Um, when he says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. He's not saying, you know, if you want to be a Christian, you basically need to uh, stop thinking critically. You need to stop learning. But he knew that these people were obsessed with this art form of rhetoric where, you know, these, these trained speakers would come in And they would argue a case in these uh, really eloquent ways. And that people were enamored, not with the content of what these people were saying, but the way they said it. And so Paul chose purposely to to communicate in a way that wouldn't uh, appeal to them and what they wanted. Instead, he spoke plainly to them. It's likely that Paul himself was trained in rhetoric since he was indeed a scholar. And yet he chose this other route because he didn't want to puff up these people and their arrogance. And then he says in verse three and four, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So Paul, you know, he might have been afraid, not only because of persecution, but also because 
of the pride that these people were exhibiting when he went into their city. He probably felt like these people wouldn't be receptive to God. And yet he says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So it's likely that Paul went in there, he reasoned with them, he he gave arguments and evidence for, for belief in Christianity, but ultimately he knew that it would come down to the power of the message of the cross. That that the spirit working through him would be the thing that changes people's minds about whether they should listen to God, whether they should adopt God's wisdom. And he says, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. You know, one of the things that we notice is that Paul was intent not to try to manipulate people. You know, he says, I, I, didn't try to, I didn't try to persuade you with these eloquent words. And I think it's an important lesson for us. You know, those of us who are interested in sharing the message of Christ, we need to be very careful not to try to manipulate people. We need to make sure that they are making a clear decision based on evidence. But also, we need to make sure that we're not going overboard and trying to provide all of this evidence while excluding the message of the cross. I remember hearing this story about how this guy felt really frustrated because he was sharing uh, his faith with all these people in his neighborhood and his coworkers. And he's like, man, I'm just getting nowhere with these guys. And so finally, one of his friends said, um, so let me ask you this. Are you actually sharing like the message of Christ with them? Like, are you just talking about, you know, different pieces of evidence for belief in Christianity? He's like, you know what? Uh, we never really get around to that. And so uh, he failed to mention the central message of Christianity, which is the power of God. All right, let's draw a few pieces of application here. I think, first of all, will we choose to affirm the wisdom of this world? Are we going to decide to follow what, the wor- what human wisdom says? Or will we submit to the wisdom of God? That's really the two options that we have. The wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God. If we live by the wisdom of the world, guess what? We have an opportunity to boast. And yet, we forfeit acceptance from God, lasting closeness with others throughout eternity, ultimate purpose, and eternal life. And so, the cost of being able to boast is, is great. It's a high price to pay. But if we submit to God's wisdom, we gain all of those things, but we forfeit the ability to boast according to God. And God sets this standard and he says, I don't care who you are, if you're rich, if you're poor, if you're accomplished, if you, know, you come from some family that is prestigious, all of you have to pass underneath this. That's my requirement. And so you're going to have to drop your pride if you want to come to me. And so I think for some of us, we may be asking, how do we start this? How do we start to adopt God's wisdom? Well, Paul explains this in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and it is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. 
If you're here tonight and you don't know God personally, what God wants you to know is that he is giving you an opportunity to turn to him and receive forgiveness freely as a gift. But there needs to be an admission that you can't do it yourself. That your good works, all of your accomplishments, none of those things are going to matter. And none of those things can ultimately save you, but it's only the gift of God. It's good. All right, why don't we just end there and um, spend some time with God in prayer. Yes, Lord, uh, when I read through the Bible, it reads um, as if um, no human ever conceived of those things. That um, the thought that, you know, we would receive salvation free of charge because of your sacrifice is uh, something I would not have imagined. Um, if I were to create, you know, a philosophy or a worldview uh, that would obtain salvation, it would be about how good I am and um, how much worse other people are. And so um, thank you that you have um, come to us with a revelation that, it, that really goes against our human pride. And um, I pray for those of us who uh, might be on the verge of receiving your free gift. I pray that we would have the courage to set aside our pride and to adopt your wisdom. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.